So, good morning. So, as they mentioned, I got through this in 36 minutes in the first service, so we're covering um, kind of uh, 400 years of history, so uh, it's not a scholarly exercise. <laughs> it's high level. Uh, my daughter pointed out earlier, um, we were talking afterwards, that it, she's like, well, it wasn't obvious till the end why you were doing this, so let me make it clear. Uh, <laughs> oh, it was good feedback. It was good feedback. Um, the, you know, the... the Acts of, you know, the, the book of Acts and what happened during Acts was largely a communal phenomenon. And so what I'm trying to do is explain sort of the history and the context, the social, political um, sorts of things that were happening that allowed that community to exist and ultimately to thrive. It's, um, when you look at the, the breadcrumbs of history, you can see God's hand throughout them in ways which aren't sort of obvious until after the fact. So that's why we're doing this. Oops. So we're going to talk a little bit about the intertestamental period. It's the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And um, uh, it just provides us with a lot of uh, context to understand the scripture. I think it's important that we understand what people were thinking and feeling at the time. And you can't understand what they were, what they were thinking and feeling if you don't know what's going on. And context is always important. You know, it's one of these things which, unfortunately, a lot of us do. I'm guilty of it as well. You know, we'll take something out of scripture and they'll say, I own that, without understanding, you know, who it was written to, what it was about, what was going on. And it's not like God can't give us promises that were given for the, for the, like in the Old Testament for the Jews. We can kind of say, oh, that's his heart. I own that. But a lot of these things are pretty specific. And so it's always good to understand what was going on. And there was a lot going on um, at the world at that time. A lot. And we're going to break that down a little bit so you can understand. Um, it was a pretty crazy point in history, and I think that craziness, while seeming random, if you look at it after the fact, again, you can see God's hand in it. This is sometimes called the silent period because the Old Testament had closed and there was no, nothing happening until the canon of the New Testament, but it really wasn't. It was, um, as I'd say, it was a 400-year uh, gestation punctuated by a three-year ministry out of Jesus's that launched a 2,000-year process of redemption. And, you know, when we look at Acts, sometimes I think, I have, the first time I read it, I'm like, how could that happen today? Like, what, how, how did that happen? And we, we, you know, I remember there was this really cheesy band, um, Christian band, and the early ones were all cheesy. I don't care, I don't care what anyone says, it's called Acts 2, right? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> I could barely listen to it, but I was like, you know, every, everybody is so into this Acts two, Acts two. It, it just seemed to me, it was like, wow, this is so, you know, how does that happen today? You know, what was, you know, we, we, we put Acts as like, oh, that could never happen. But I think that's probably not accurate. I think we just need to understand a little bit better about how God moves. So we're going to go through some major milestones. I've, I've put a couple of dates kind of before and after where we're going to talk about primarily, just so you can place this in, in, in contextual history. Okay, in 586, um, Jerusalem falls. The Jews are sent off in exile to Babylon. Um, 444, Nehemiah and Ezra return back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the walls. You, know, you guys can read all the Old Testament accounts, but you know, the Jews, Jews return. In 430, the last book of the Old Testament is written. Uh, Malachi writes a book exhorting the Jews to stay in it because it was hard and also provides some um, eschatological end-time uh, markers to encourage them. Those end-time markers are relevant for all of us as well, but uh, Malachi does have a, a fair amount of end-time sort of prophecies. 
Once the Jews are in place, they're just kind of surviving. And then on the world stage, this guy Alexander comes into place, and he sort of uh, rolls up the world, if you will. <laughs> he just kind of takes it, you know, the known world at the time. He, he takes, takes charge and um, creates this kind of great era and um, expands it through this process called Hellenism, which we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, Alexander is one man. Uh, he, in some ways, he may have gotten a little bit ahead of himself. He dies relatively young, and he creates a, uh, um, his, his, his successors um, pretty much all turn on each other, and then there's this really uh, uh, turbulent time of history, which uh, arrives in the land of Israel, and they actually revolt against it, in something called the Maccabean Revolt in 164. That gives rise to um, a group of people um, called the Hasmonean Dynasty, which lasts uh, not very long, but is, again, another particularly ugly part of history, and again, very turbulent. Um, the Romans come on play, and into play in 63 BC, largely to, re to restore order. Um, they do so by um, creating a king, um, Herod the Great, which if you've read the, old, the, the New Testament, you'll be familiar with. Uh, just to give uh, context for the, kind of the, the whole picture, in 5 AD, um, Saul is born. In 30 AD, as we know, Jesus uh, dies, um, resurrects, and ascends. In 67 AD, uh, Paul dies in Rome. Oh, we have a, a child call for number one. Number one. Okay. Um, and um, just so you know, that, that might happen again. We, uh, we're trying to work out some kinks in the, in the system, so I am the, I am the slide for number one. <laughs> in uh, 70 AD, uh, the, the Romans finally tire of all the, the, uh, the Jewish revolts and destroy it. Um, Jerusalem completely, you know, not one stone on top of another, as they say. And then in 96 AD, um, John writes the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. So let's, uh, let's go through these kind of quickly, but uh, some of, the, um, some of these, these key periods and why they're significant. So again, the closing of the chapter, um, 586 to 430, the Jews um, leave, they come back, Malachi is written, um, to exhort them to stay the course, the Old Testament closes. Um, why is this significant? One, this is, again, just kind of gives you a marker of history at the time and what people were going through at the time is that throughout the Old Testament, there's a lot of um, discussions of, of the Jews and their propensity for idol worship, right? It's really the last time you hear about it. Something fundamentally changes uh, the Jews aren't really, you know, idol worship becomes less and less of an issue. I believe it because it's the pagan structures and the mythological religions of the time are starting to lose their sway. The sort of um, very superstitious religion, actually superstition becomes something that the Greeks completely rebel against. Um, that they're declining in relevance. So it's not as much of a temptation for the Jews anymore. The Jews want to go back, and historically, a good Jew would always long for the holy city, Jerusalem. They still do, and the temple, and a lot of them still do as well. But that was, that was a historical thing. But they've, their kind of collective mindset as a, as, a, as a culture has been scarred. I mean, they've been kicked out of their country. And as they come back, um, they begin to evolve a bit. And there's this new, um, this new mindset of, it's not really where you live, but it's... Um, kind of how you live. And that, the being Jewish starts to evolve a little bit. It used to be, you know, if you were Jewish, you, you made a pilgrimage to the temple. You were sacrificing at the temple. 
That was the old, you know, the old, the old covenant. The, the covenant still exists, but it's harder and harder to do, and they've already been kicked out of their country once. So they start to evolve a little bit about what being Jewish means. And so then, again, they're just sort of stumbling along, surviving. There is no temple. It's still a ruin. But they're in, they're in their homeland. And then this guy Alexander comes on the scene. And he is, uh, he is as you know history at all, he conquers much of the known world at the time. He doesn't know what to do about it. Uh, so now he kind of, I don't, you know, he originally went off on pretty much a, a blood feud to get the Persians who had killed his father. And that was his main thing. But once he got going, he just couldn't stop, right? So he just, he just kind of rolls up. He like goes all the way to India. And he's, he, just, can he, he just keeps going until finally he dies of um, some, some random disease. But he's 32 years old. But while he's, he's going along, he's like, how am I going to control all this? You've got all these different kinds of people. And he decides the best way to control them is to export uh, Greek, the Greek way of life. He's, they all think it's awesome and better than everything else. And so he, he, he creates this, this, uh, this movement called Hellenism. And that's the determined export of Greek culture and language. It's a huge deal. Alexander goes, actually to um, Jerusalem, and, you know, they, they would kind of go, and usually, as Jesus said, you know, if you, if you know you're not going to win, you send somebody out and say, hey, <laughs> let's not fight. Uh, how much will it take for you not to kill all my people? And um, I'm not even kidding about that. That's kind of how it worked. And so Alexander goes, and the Jews are worried, so they send all their scholars out, because they heard he's a learned man. And they meet him outside, and they really hit it off. Uh, Alexander's like, wow, this, this is because the Jewish... Hebrew culture, it's very unique. It's really special. It's really special. And he's impressed with these people. And so he likes them so much that not only does he not, you know, pound them into the dust, he actually goes and makes a a sacrifice at the temple. And he says, hey, what a bunch of you guys, I'm I'm building this city named after me, Alexandria, and I'd like, you know, your smartest people to come and uh, come live in this this city. Alexandria is in... uh, what is today Egypt. Um, and so Greek and Hebrew at this point in time start to mingle in a big way. Why is this significant? One, the Jews in Alexandria produced something called the Septuagint. Septuagint. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's Greek for 70. And the, the, the legend is, is that um, this guy Philo, who was in charge of all the Greek scholars, puts 70 Jews in different rooms, not allowing them to talk to each other, and tells them to write down the Old Testament, um, primarily the Torah, I think, at least initially. And then he compares them all to make sure that they're all accurate, and they're, they're completely consistent. They're completely accurate. Uh, and so you have, the, you have the Old Testament scripture now, just as Hebrew as a language starts a, kind of a long, slow descent um, now, since, since then, has reemerged, but at one point, uh, Hebrew was considered a dead language. But before they could lose the Old Testament scriptures, this process happens, and the, the Old Testament is captured in uh, Konea, Greek, in a, uh, the common uh, uh, language of the land. Um, it's also significant because Hellenism is deeply rooted in earthly intellectualism. It's not compatible with traditional Hebrew thought. This is kind of a weird marriage to begin with. And, you know, uh, Hebrew is based on a, uh, a belief of ob- obedience and an obedient relationship with God, whereas Hellenism is really about acquiring more and more knowledge to improve the, um, the lot of man and his wisdom. 
or is intelligence would be a better way to say it. Uh, we value a variation of that right here today in Cambridge. This might be considered to be a center of, of Hellenist thought. Um, also, another thing, if, if, when you read the Old Testament, you have, when, you, when you look at the towns in, um, sorry, in the New Testament, when you, read, when you read it, you ever wondered why there's towns called Hebron, Beersheba, Jerusalem? And there are towns called Tiberias, Caesarea Philippi. You ever wonder? This is why. Okay, those, are, those were like model towns. The Hellenists came in and set up town and said, you know, we're going to have Greek here. So the Greeks were a dominant and sophisticated worldview. It was popular, still popular. So, but it's, it's kind of landing right in the middle of God's chosen place. And it was, went swimmingly to start. Again, Alexander liked these people. He had some of their scholars. And Alexander was a very uh, moderate man as far as religion. It's kind of like, because religion was superstition. It's like, do whatever you want with your religion, but we're just going to embrace this kind of rational way of thinking. And so he let them practice their religion. Except that didn't work with his successors. Okay, when he uh, dies, again, uh, young, as foretold in the prophecy of Daniel, his kingdom uh, disintegrates into three smaller kingdoms, and they're, they're at their, each other's throats almost immediately. Almost immediately. So um, the Jews are caught in the crossfire, and um, it becomes harder and harder uh, to coexist with these guys, and then, then, then the gloves come off. And some people thought this was actually the, the abomination of desolation spoken in the Bible, but this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, who... Um, History is kind of conflicted on. Some people say he was absolutely bonkers, and he was upheld as a child as a hostage for one of his um, sibling uncles. Um, but, you know, he's a, he, he goes to the temple, and he sacrifices an unclean animal, a pig, on the altar. And then he, then he literally makes uh, Judaism illegal. And if you contest or get in the way or anything, um, you're killed. Many are persecuted and die. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Really ugly time of uh, Jewish history. So why is this significant? It's a traumatic period of Jewish history. There's no other way around it. This is, the Jews are just, um, you know, they've, they've, they've been through a lot, right? They've been in Babylon. They come back. They're poor. They're struggling to get by. They have a little bit of a blip of a high period. And then they're just trapped in, like, think of, like, Syria, right? They're, they're, they're in the middle of that. And they're like, what do we do? So what a lot of them do is leave. Okay? This is really important. Um, there's a third century Greek historian, historian who said that there wasn't a place on earth where you wouldn't run into a Jew. They start leaving. Instead of the temple, they start to create this idea of synagogue, which is said Greek for assembly. It's this idea of community. So rather than having everything revolve around this temple, it revolves around this assembly. It revolves around people. Seems common to us, but it actually was a huge deal. Nothing quite like it in, in these times. So there's this social evolution where Jewish communities start to proliferate outside of geographic Israel. You start to have these communities, interesting communities, that are um, unique, even attractive. You know, they, they eat together. They sing together. Sound familiar? They, they sing together. They pray together. They take care of each other. Um, and they start popping up in these places where there's nothing quite like them. Back in Israel, um, some capitulate and, and, and um, Hellenize, and some 
but some decide not to. There's a, there's a funny story I ran across in uh, one of these um, histories I was reading where um, <laughs> you know, Hel- uh, the Greeks have gymnasium, you know, this place where you go and you work. Who knows what, the, what you wear to the gymnasium? It's not yoga pants, no. <laughs> Who knows? Absolutely nothing. Okay. The first, the, 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 the original Olympics, you were absolutely nothing. So there's this interesting story where a lot of the, um, a lot of the Jews wanted to be Greek, right? Um, and they wanted to go to gymnasium. But the problem was they were all circumcised. And that wasn't cool. <laughs> they didn't want to stick out. So there's like, I guess, probably the first time of uh, ancient um, plastic surgical procedures, some of them actually tried to have their circumcision reversed. Must have been quite a little cottage industry, but anyways, just a little. The first service did not get that little piece of information, so you, you, that was. But, but anyways, um, uh, this guy Antiochus starts off this pretty much purge. Now he's going to go kind of county by county, and he is going to eliminate Judaism from the face of the earth. It's kind of like almost like. Uh, Haman in the, the story of the Old Testament. He is going to exterminate Judaism. Unfortunately, um, the first place he goes to is this guy named Matthias, the Maccabees, that's a family, and uh, he brings his little guy to tell him how they're going to set up an altar to Zeus, and um, he has a, a Greek and a Jewish-like translator. They kill the Greek, and they sacrifice the Jewish guy on an altar, and it begins a very bloody revolution, but surprisingly, they win. You know, they, they, there was so many things going on in different places um, that the Jews actually win their, their, uh, their independence, which is interesting because you know, we'll talk about it a little bit more. And this idea of a violent overthrow of the, the rulers at the time, um, it's kind of like being part of, you know, looking at the American Revolution. It worked for them. They won. However, the Hasmonean dynasty um, is really actually worse. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, they become the high priest, so it's a religious and political structure. And these guys are not up to the task. I mean, they might have been good fighters, but they weren't good, um, they weren't good leaders. And they had serious character flaws. And they start killing more people um, than the other guys did. In fact, it gets so bad that a lot of the, uh, the Hasmonean leaders have to uh, either invade or hire mercenary fighters because they can't trust the Jews to even be in their army. And again, think of, think of Syria, warlords. Uh, it's just a bloodbath. In the middle of all this, um, the Jews are caught in the crossfire. Hellenism hasn't, didn't do any, it was all about power. These guys didn't try to change anything. They just wanted power and control. So Hellenism continues its, its, its march on. And the Jews, again, are caught in this crossfire. And so now they start to evolve even more. You have three kind of categories of, of Jews or religious Jews that emerge. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. And the easiest way to think about them is that the Pharisees create a parallel system of regulations and rules. Right? They create something which, you know, so this is what it means to be Jewish. Because it's hard to see what it means to be Jewish because they're trying to make us Greek. And these guys are telling us that if we're Jewish, we're gonna, they're going to kill us. And then these other guys are here, and it's just not safe to do anything. The Pharisees say, here, you need all these new things. Um, sorry. The Sadducees are actually the ones, they're, they're usually wealthy. And they only believe in the five books of the Torah. And they don't believe in resurrection, as we know. And they, they, um, they're, they're, 
they like the Greek thing. It works for them. They have a lot of money, typically. And they're like, this is great. We'll, we'll kind of co-opt. And then the Essenes essentially say, I'm getting out of here. They, they go to places like Galilee and set up these personal piety uh, communities. They, 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 they're the ones that kind of check out. Why is this significant? The narrative of um, the white knight, um, you know, this, this uh, messianic figure that comes and kicks butt and just violent overthrow becomes deeply ingrained in popular Jewish thought. This idea of, you know, we need another Maccabee guy. We need somebody else to come in here and just smack everybody around. It's popular. You actually have um, a lot of messianic literature emerging. And, and, and while it's not in, in our canon of scripture, the Catholics actually have a lot of these books. And if, even from a historical point of view, they're, they're useful to see that, you know, this was, you know, people were looking for somebody to come and restore order and, and set the table straight. It's a disorderly time where literally the high priesthood is for sale. There are a couple of situations where the high priest is bought. Somebody says, I'm going to pay you such and such some money, and because it's a position of power. So it goes to show you kind of how uh, much integrity or, or um, you know, spiritual insight would be that that person, you know, it's just, one more, it's just one more political structure to oppress the people. Uh, devout Jews fear that they're you know, that their culture is in an existential struggle. I'm, as I said in the earlier service, I'm not an apologist for the Pharisees, but you can understand where they were coming from. The Pharisees say, you know, we have to do something. We have to create some new things. We've got to do some rules and regulations. There must be some way for us to save our culture and distinguish ourselves from this mess that's going on all around us. It's a toxic mix. I mean, it's just, this is, if it was bad before, it's even worse now, because now you've got small people and bit players, warlords. It's anarchy. And it's bloody. And everyone's kind of just got their head down. If you're not leaving, you're staying there. And in the middle of one of these, these, um, these power plays, I won't bore you with the guys who were involved, the Romans uh, are, uh, are invited in. And originally they thought, well, the Romans will come in and restore order. And they'll make, um, they'll make me king and I'll beat my, 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 um, my rival. But that isn't exactly how it happened. This guy Pompey comes in, and Pompey is actually, unbeknownst to these guys who invited them in, he thinks the region is a good place to provide food back to Rome, and also Pompey is kind of auditioning for the, to be um, Caesar of Rome. So he's looking for, uh, you know, he's looking to build his resume, essentially. And uh, it actually goes back home, and he has a big, big arc. Um, he, you know, he, he brings some, um, brings a bunch of Jewish captives back. You know, this is kind of a show thing. But he comes in, and he goes right in and lays down the law on the Jews, and actually goes into the Holy Holies and desecrates the temple. And so, didn't get off on a good foot, clearly. Um, he, he, um, he appoints Herod, uh, who was an Edomite. An Edomite is a son of Esau, if you know your Bible. Um, he's appointed king, and then the high priest is separate. So you have a high priest, and that becomes an, even a more political uh, position in that you know, they, they work with the Sanhedrin. Herod lived in land, Edom, which is now Jordan, where these other warlords had invaded and made him convert to Judaism. He's not really a Jew. But the Roman is like, listen, we like this guy. He's a real, uh, he's clearly crazy, as you can tell from scripture, but he's also very effective. And so they make him um, the king, and he ends up running the country ruthlessly but effectively from the Roman perspective. It's an uneasy accommodation, and it just, um, the whole thing, you know, it's just simmering 
underneath the surface. Why is this significance? The Romans have little patience or understanding for the Jews. You can see this all through the New Testament, the way Pilate washes his hands like, you guys are nuts. They don't understand it. They, they really don't want anything to do with the, the spiritual nature of the land. They just want a place where they can feed and, and get tribute and food back up into uh, the places they really care about. The Jews hate them in return. Ultimately, this um, creates a dynamic where the Jews um, get, you know, Jerusalem gets completely destroyed. Herod is a conflicted figure. This is, this is just fascinating. I mean, you can see it with uh, um, the story of John the Baptist. You know, he had him in prison, but he didn't know what to do with him. You know, he, he wants to be loved by the Jews, but he knows they'll never accept him because he's not a Jew. He's not a Jew. You know, he's, he'll, never, he'll never, especially the Pharisees, he'll never overcome that, and he knows it. So he has all the power, and he lords it over them. On the other hand, he wishes they would accept him. So one of the ways he deals with this is he... Uh, and he's, he's still renowned. Histor- history's been kind to him on this front. He does a big public works campaign, and he rebuilds the temple, amongst other things he does. So he creates the temple. So whereas, you, on one hand, you have this stream of people that are creating this more community-based religion off the back of this really toxic, messy, and very ungodly force, they rebuild the temple. And the temple um, becomes a source of symbolism and kind of political posturing kind of makes you understand a little bit what Jesus was thinking when he went in there and turned it upside down. It also, as we talked about in the first uh, service, you know, I, I was thinking about this. It's not, it's not, it's not remarkable that, that they kill Jesus at all, if you understand this, because they were killing people left and right for, for nothing. What is remarkable is that Jesus lived three years. And you see in the Old Testament these situations where God protected him. He probably would have lived like three days if um, you know, he had to do the thing that God had, had him do. But the fact that he went to the temple and did what he did is like, that guy is a brave, brave man. That's suicide. Okay, so this is the land that Jesus steps into. Now here we'll, we'll try to kind of connect some of these, um, some of these uh, breadcrumbs here. So the land that Jesus steps onto, which is the land the, the Acts of the Apostles flows out of, again, it was only three years, is violent, very violent, and it's ordered by changing forces. Up is down, you know, this guy's in charge, that guy's in charge, this kingdom's in charge, that kingdom's in charge. So it's, it's a place that breeds insecurity, excuse me, hostility, and despair. I mean, the people are really, um, if, unless you're part of the power structure, you're just getting whipped around, and every day could be your last day. It's a pretty um, unsettling period, I think, to be alive. The Jews, absent any kind of authentic revelation, again, Malachi is over. They haven't had a prophet come. Um, they don't know what to do. So the Pharisees create this sort of parallel structure where you know, people can you know, glom onto that and say, you know, look, I, I know what it is. This is how I'm preserving my culture and my traditions. But a lot of them, a lot of them emigrate and create new communities. Again, remember that point. So what are the pros and cons of this period of time? So the diaspora created an unprecedented and attractive community, communities tied to synagogues. So the diaspora creates this, this un, really, nothing like it, these, these communities all around the region of um, very healthy uh, familial, you know, interesting. There, and it's, in antiquity, it's unique. There isn't anything really like this. Um, the Old Testament scriptures, through this process, 
um, are preserved for, you know, forever um, in a common language. When you look at the, um, in the New Testament, when somebody quotes the Old Testament, that's what they quote. They're quoting Greek to Greek. That may seem like a small thing, but it isn't. Um, and then this counterculture of personal piety emerges. You know, you think of the Essenes, think of John the Baptist, what he was doing out at the I mean, he's There's this other thing going on where people are saying, what do we do? And then, you know, there's this, this organic, viral um, emergence of people like John the Baptist, the Essenes, the people out in Galilee. And, and you know, there's this thing, this whole movement of personal piety starts to take root. On the... Um, the bad side, the priesthood is politicized. So if there ever was a chance that there was going to be authentic spiritual leadership of the country, it's so far gone at this point that nobody believes it. The Hellenism is rampant. And it's, um, you know, some people, it's, it's really in, kind of in the mix now, never to be really removed. And, you know, it's been planted there. And that the population, really, what they look for for salvation is a... Um, is a violent, a violent leader who can be a little bit more bloodthirsty than the other people. I mean, their expectations in some ways are pretty low. And certainly, certainly, you can see how they would be puzzled when Jesus emerges. And some people say, he's the Messiah. Like, well, who has he killed? <laughs> you know? Uh, like, on that one. <laughs> and I'm going to remember that point, because I think that's actually, it's, it seems silly, but it's, I think it's actually pretty profound. So how is this relevant to Acts? If you look at what the Acts of the... With, during Acts, the missionary movement of Christians, as they left Jerusalem after they got kicked out, um, they largely follow these Jewish communities. Okay, that's what they were doing. The, um, they were circuit riding from one to the other. God had placed these... Uh, these communities, these healthy communities, uh, in, in, you know, in time so that the Jews had like a blueprint for evangelizing the area. You know, sometimes you lose sight of the fact that God is in the mix, but this is the first outreaches were always to Jews. In fact, the Gentiles were a complete afterthought. They were surprised. They were like, huh? You know, but they shouldn't have been because... Um, I asked this question in the first service. Have you ever read the uh, Acts of the Apostles and said, where does Cornelius come from? You guys know who Cornelius is, right? He's the guy that gave the alms. He's a Gentile. He's a Roman. I think he's a Roman centurion. And the Roman centurion in the New Testament. Think about him. Right? He's the one that goes to Jesus and says, you know, uh, I, I'm a man under authority. You can heal my servant from here. And he was brought there by Jews who said, you've got to talk to this guy. He's awesome. Why? Where does he come from? He comes from because the Gentiles are, are so enamored with these communities that they want to be part of them. They're so enamored with the way that these people take care of each other. That the way that they, you know, and it's interesting. They sing, they pray, you know, it's, they eat together. And there's nothing like it. So Cornelius wants to be part of, he wants to be part of this community. And that's how he gets in. He starts, he starts taking care of the poor. And they're like, yo, yeah, well, you know, yeah, you're great. You're one of us. And God goes to him and gives him that vision. That's where Cornelius comes from. I, I doubt he's sort of a, I mean, I'm sure he's a, um, an important exception, but I think this idea of, 
of having these communities, they were appealing. God had kind of built something which, when the Christians moved into it, it really had good legs. It had good foundation. While the Greeks and the Romans brought order and affluence, their prevailing worldview, especially the spiritual worldview, was really pretty bankrupt. Um, you, you have a hard time, um, you know, you think, you know, you see it in, all through, the, through Acts. And the best example I see is um, in the story in Acts where they have the riot at the temple of Artemis where, like, you know, our, our, is Ephesus is like, you know, the, they're, they're, they're having a mob, like, you know, this is the, the temple of Artemis, the greatest thing, you know, and the, the rumor was it had, had you know, had, a rock had fallen down from ground and turned from the sky and turned into a temple, and there's this big mob, and they're, 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 um, they're trying to uh, get Paul run out of town, and, and they weren't really saying anything. All of a sudden, you know, kind of the voice of reason, probably a Roman proconsul, or somebody in charge comes on, comes over and says to the people who started the riot, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's pretty much something like, you run what, like a theme park in a gift shop, okay? This is not serious. Nobody believes this is actually true, and you better knock it off before you really get in trouble. There's something telling about that. All of this, um, you know, the, 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 the kind of the spiritual uh, worldview at the time, especially if you saw it in Athens, was, I, I called it earlier, this combination of Unitarianism, God is everywhere, and these idols. So it was an idol for everything. It actually gets Paul so wound up, you'll see on Mars Hill, that he actually confronts the whole idea, the whole, the whole you know, they say we're not superstitious, but you are, you are superstitious. So there's this, um, there's this really bankrupt type of spiritual system. And so despite the fear and the dangers all around them, there is spiritual hunger in every segment of society. It's a, um, you know, God had prepared this whole land in a strange sort of way, through hardship, you know, and, and really, you know, the whole process, you can see that the Christians tapped into a definite spiritual hunger, born out of looking at all the different alternatives and saying, that ain't real, that ain't real, that ain't real, that ain't real. So you wonder why it took off so fast. Um, but it is interesting. And, you know, it's like I, uh, I was praying about this this morning, and I'm just going to, you know, I felt like the Lord gave me a little story. It's almost like, you know, um, a Christian and a, you know, it's not a joke, a Christian and a Jew walk into a bar. Uh, <laughs> I was just like, Lord, what would, what would it be like? All right, so I am, I'm a Christian, and I'm in Antioch, okay, and I'm, I'm witnessing to a Jew. I was a Jew, I became a Christian, and I'm wishing, wish, witnessing to a Jew. And I tell him the story of Jesus. And I say, uh, yeah, you know, they killed him. He was a brave man, brave man, like, yeah. And then they killed him, but death couldn't hold him. And he rose from the grave, and, and the, the Jew says, yeah, and so like what? He, he had like machine guns and grenades, and he went down to the Roman garrison, and he blew everybody up, and, and uh, yeah, he, he just killed everybody, right? It's like, no, 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 he didn't do that. Uh, he said that we're, you know, we probably all might die like he did, and um, we should pick up our cross and follow him, and... and it just really struck me that that the gospel will never appeal to your mind. Yeah. It'll never appeal to your mind. And that it was, you know, what, what did it appeal to, right? What did it appeal to? So, you know, the, the, the Christian is like, well, what, why would anyone 
You're, you're preconditioned to look for the strong man, somebody to come in and, and restore control. And they said, yeah, this guy, is the, he's the real deal. But he's not going to, you know, well, he will someday, but he's not going to come and, and, um, and screw with this system. And it's like, wow, why? In your head, you're like, and that's good, why? So what, you know, the, 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 the Acts of the Apostles in that, that period, you, you see these communities. They were, they, were, they were God's mechanism to get to people's hearts. Because that's all God ever cares about. And so were there, were, there, were, there, were there episodes of power in the Acts of the Apostle? Yeah, lots, right? It wasn't military power, it was spiritual power. It was the Holy Spirit manifest through signs and wonders and healings. So it wasn't like there was no power, right? That's something I think that we all need to make a note of, right? Be, you know, if, we, if we're walking around having our kind of dialogue and there is no power, I don't think it happens without power, but there was power there. But it was spiritual power. It wasn't earthly power. It wasn't military power. It wasn't intellectual power. It was just the spirit moving in ways which people just like, whoa! I have no explanation for that. And it says, you know, they'll know we are Christians by our love. Yeah. So these communities were reflecting fruit of the spirit. It was, they were looking and saying, yeah, you know, but yeah, so he's not going to come and make everything right, but look how they live. Look how they love each other. Look, look how, you know, how they care for each other. Look how they, you know, how they, how they are. Um, they care so much about each other that they, they'll, they'll have patience. They'll, they'll correct each other, but they'll bring each other back. I mean, that was, you know, for, for that, that era in time, that would be, that would be, um, you know, be pretty, pretty unique. So it's a period of time where you, know, you just see um, God's heart manifest through a community of people. And I say, why, why would... There's also... Um, there's a spiritual power which is just telling the truth. Right, so uh, I have this book here. I would encourage anyone to read it. And so when you get into Acts of the Apostles, there's the story of uh, Paul on Mars Hill. And I, just as an aside, if you're ever looking for... Um, and, uh, a good illustration how somebody was walking in apostolic authority challenges and speaks the truth. Um, that is a very good example. The other thing that the, the, I think that the people were drawn to is like how they made decisions. So as opposed to having all these political intrigue and, and what was the new church going to do, who, who had authority, who was in power, who was going to dominate, who, you know, how was this going to work, how did, the, how did the early church make decisions? They did what? They fasted and prayed. Okay, very countercultural, very countercultural. But that is, you know, this this was all, this was all. You were here in the first service. This was all. <laughs> this was all so unique. This was all so different, right? This was all so different. So how is this relevant to today? Okay, the prominence of human philosophies positioned as alternative to true relationship with God was, is, and will be a hallmark of human history. This exists today. So the Hellenistic movement exists today. It's, you know, you could, Hellenistic you, <laughs> you could say, is all around us. Um, there will always be human philosophies in the world positioned against God. They did, they will, and, you know, they will in the future oppose the gospel. Okay, so if you're looking to have some sort of uh, um, coexistence with that world order and that way of thinking, they're incompatible. They're incompatible. 
the early church did not coexist. Sorry. No, get rid of the bumper sticker. Uh, it didn't work. They didn't coexist. They didn't. They didn't. They, you know, they did, they, they, you know, they also didn't, you know, try to, you know, rub everybody out. They did what God had them do. And how did they do it? Um, they did it in a spirit-filled community devoted to prayer and piety. Okay? So if you, if you follow the breadcrumbs, the communities, the, 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 the historical hardships, the tragedies, the different political systems, the culture, and you say, you know, what was going on? They arrive at this point in history where all of these seeds have been planted. And then the, really the, the, the water on them all is the Holy Spirit. God blows on this thing. And it just explodes. It just explodes. But it had been, you know, it had been set in place... Um, 400 years earlier. It's not, you know, it's not a coincidence. And so when we think about, you know, how, what's this mean for us? And, you know, we're, we're aspiring to be, and I'm sure because we talk in the series, um, what can we learn from the Acts of the Apostles? I mean, what, what the real takeaways are is that, that, that it's, it's born out of, a, out of a community of faith built upon prayer, pursuing holiness as best we can, and, you know, asking God to, to blow on it, to, to bring that kind of power and signs and wonders. It's not that, you know, our, you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm one of those guys that's like, I know I need to learn this lesson. And typically people who learn this lesson have to go through a hard time. But I don't want the hard time. <laughs> so, you know, Lord, it's kind of, if it be your will, I'd rather, you know, can't I just learn it without the hard time? And, um, you know, maybe God answers those prayers. Maybe he doesn't. Right? And so I think we're in that kind of case. You know, none of us, I think, would wish for um, the world go to hell in a handbasket, as they say, but some people think it already has. And you, know, you can despair. You can say, oh, you know, all is lost. But if you're using this as your guideline, if you, if you say, kind of like that cheesy band, Acts 2, that's what I'm all about, Acts 2. If you want, if you want to follow their roadmap, then things will have to get a lot worse, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's, I'm not, again, I'm like, I'm not saying, let's get a little, I hope it all gets worse. I hope it doesn't. When it comes to that stuff, I'm, I'm a full coward. <laughs> you know, I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, I'd rather like, yeah, let's, 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 we'll just get this. You know, we don't have to go through all that stuff. Um, but if, as we move through this, as, as we see um, pressures and things we don't understand and ungodly leaders and injustice in the world and, um, things that just don't seem right. We have a choice to make, you know. And one one way of looking at this, I think, is you need to have always be looking for what God is doing. God is in control. He is in control. And this, you know, when you start, when I looked at this history, I was like, wow. I never saw all the breadcrumbs, but all these things happen. They seem so random and and different, but they all led to this place where. God could move in a way which is unprecedented. And maybe he can again. But we can take a lot, and hopefully in the weeks ahead, we will take a lot from looking at what we learned from the Acts of the Apostles and see how they behaved. And you know, I think the challenge always for us is that was a long time ago and we live in a different culture. Some things are, are, um, are culturally contextual and don't apply to us today. But there's a lot of there, a lot of that's in there that is really relevant. And a little challenging, a little challenging. But that's okay. So if you want to, you know, if you want to, if you, if you say, I want X2, I think now you have a little bit better idea what you're asking for.
Yeah. <laughs>